A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm James Titko. Coming up this week, the new health survey calling on 5 million Brits to improve disease detection. Bees shock scientists studying electricity generated by their buzzing. And can gaming boost cognition in youngsters? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, a new health initiative has launched in the UK which goes by the name Our Future Health. It's a government-funded study that's aiming to find earlier signs to better detect diseases and will initially enlist up to 5 million Brits. Raghib Ali is the Chief Medical Officer on the project and he joins us live on the programme now. Raghib, what's the study all about and why are you doing it? In some ways it's a study I've been waiting for, for, I'd say, 25 years since I was a student. One of the things I noticed when I first started seeing patients, as all of us do as doctors, is that many of our patients present with diseases that are largely preventable or at least delayable, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, many cancers. Through the course of my career, I've I've seen too many patients. I work in in A&E as a consultant. If we'd been able to detect that disease earlier, we would have been able to prevent or at least delay it to, to much later in life. So our future health has been established to understand how we can better prevent disease by identifying people who are at high risk earlier and then intervening earlier to prevent those diseases. And the you know, tools and diagnostic tests have improved significantly over the last um, 10 to 15 years that now give us the opportunity to do that. I suppose one of the most eye-catching things about this study is just how big it is. So you're right, it is uh, unprecedented in its uh, scale and uh, ambition, but we really do need around 5 million people because... For the first time, what we're doing with this study is making it open to everybody, uh, all adults in the UK, 18 plus. Not all diseases are as common as others. And so we want to be able to study every disease, every common chronic disease in every group of people. And that's why we need 5 million people. But you're right, it is a big challenge. And what we're trying to do over the course of the next few years is to make it as easy as possible for people to take part. So most of what that involves is, is done online. People can sign up online, fill in a questionnaire online, book an appointment online, and then ten, attend one of our centres to give blood and, uh, and physical measurements. Are you able to give some specific examples of exactly the sort of research and I suppose eventually treatments which will benefit from the use of the data collected in this study? There are some diseases, including most of the common chronic diseases, that have a genetic component to them. So although it's often our kind of habits, diet, lifestyle, physical activity, tobacco, alcohol, etc., which are modifiable risk factors. Whether you develop a disease or not is often linked to your genetic background and makeup as well. And so what we're able to do now is to identify those who are at higher genetic risk and therefore they can be put into screening services at an earlier age. And that means instead of just going by age alone, you've got a more risk-based assessment uh, for screening. So that will help. 
Also, you know, we can now detect cancer using circulating tumor cells within the blood. It's really detecting disease at an earlier stage because most diseases develop over years or even decades. And up until now, we haven't had the technology to, to detect them at that earlier stage. But now that's what we're trying to do. And also to develop treatments based on the data that we're collecting to intervene earlier. That Sometimes that will be behavioral change, but it could also be new pharmaceuticals, new drugs that we can use. Rahi, that's where we'll have to leave it. Thanks so much for your time. Rahi Bali, that's the Chief Medical Officer of Our Future Health. In recent years, doctors have begun to treat cancers of the blood called leukaemias by reprogramming some of a patient's own white blood cells to target their cancer. This is called CAR-T cell therapy, and it's very effective. But the problem is that it's also very expensive because it has to be done on an individual patient basis. It also takes time to engineer the cells and that can delay treatment, and it's not suitable for everyone. Much more effective would be to engineer cells in advance that anyone could use. And this week, researchers at the Institute of Child Health in Great Ormond Street, London, have announced that they've done just that. They've edited the DNA of donor white blood cells to disarm and cloak them so they don't attack healthy tissue or get taken down by a patient's own immune system, but instead they go exclusively after leukaemia cells. And because they're ready to go immediately, there are no treatment delays. Wasim Kasim has now treated six children this way. There are certain types of blood cancer, leukaemias, that are now treatable by using the power of the immune system that can be reprogrammed so they go around the body and clear up leukaemia that's otherwise resistant to chemotherapy or has come back after chemotherapy. How do you actually reprogram an immune cell? Well, we collect the white blood cells, they're taken to a laboratory, and while they're there, we use a disabled virus to add a chunk of DNA which programs for a new, think of it as an arming device that can then recognise and target the cells towards abnormal cancer cells Usually they're then frozen and undergo a round of quite stringent tests before they're returned to the hospital where the patient receives them as an infusion. And then it's a question of waiting for a period of days or weeks to see if the cells are going to manage to clean up the leukaemia. What have you done to improve on this then? At the moment, these are patient bespoke therapies. And we've, what we've tried to do is make them available off the peg, if you like, or off the shelf. So to do that, we have to add in some extra engineering steps, which means that they can be infused into multiple recipients without the need for very close matching. You're saying you're going to make available to anybody cells that have been manipulated in this way to go after a cancer so it doesn't matter who they are, they can have these white blood cells and anyone can use them. So how do you stop them being recognised then as foreign when they go into the cancer victim's body? And how do you also stop them attacking things they shouldn't? Yes, that's two very important questions. So if I deal with the second one first, we can disarm the cells by removing their own T-cell receptor, which is their normal arming device. It's the normal weapons they carry on their surface to attack viruses and so on. So we take those away. And then we reprogram the cells so they only recognize a single target. And at the same time, we remove one of the flags off the surface of the cells that will make them invisible to one of the chemotherapy antibodies we use. 
to subdue a patient's immune system before the cells are actually given. So all of that together means the cells will have a free run for two to three weeks after infusion in a patient without really being challenged by the patient's own immune system. And we think that's actually long enough to get a deep clearance of leukaemia. And does it work? Well, we've treated six children, out of which four successfully reached a stage of remission, by which we mean within 28 days we couldn't detect any more leukaemia. Now, over a longer period of time, two of those patients are still clear of leukaemia. The furthest one out is uh, well over a year out now. Now, unfortunately, in, in, in a couple of the others, the disease did eventually come back. So we're looking at why that happens and how it manages to evade or escape the effects of cells over a longer period of time. How would that outcome compare with what we consider a gold standard practice not doing your new approach? Generally speaking, we think the longer term outcomes won't be far off those achieved by patients receiving their own cells. Uh, Bearing in mind at the moment, we're only treating the patients that have not been able to have the treatment from their own cells for various reasons. And so they tend to be the more advanced patients that are coming for these type of trials. I think it'll take a longer period of time to work out what the comparisons will be. Then ultimately, you'd have to run a comparison study with two groups of very similar patients to find out what the actual overall rates are. It's really encouraging news, isn't it? Wasim Kasim there, and that work has just been published in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with James Titko. Still to come, how computer games could be improving cognitive development in kids. But first, bees are well known to create a buzz when they fly. But scientists were shocked to register an electrical charge build up on swarming bees on par with a thundercloud. Will Tingle heard from Bristol University's Sam England what's going on. In our lab, we're really interested in the ways that you know, animals and plants use this naturally occurring electricity that kind of exists all around us in their lives. So we're often both doing experiments or taking measurements with animals, such as honeybees, but we also want to get a nice background measurement of the kind of naturally occurring electricity that's just in the atmosphere all the time. And one day we were doing some of these background recordings and it just so happened that one of our honeybee hives decided to swarm, which is when the queen of the hive, she flies away and makes a new nest somewhere else. And it just so happened that we captured this on our electric field sensor. We saw this massive spike. Obviously, it wasn't the most controlled experiment ever. So that kind of told us that we should keep an eye out for next time there's going to be another honeybee swarm. We should be a bit more prepared with like, you know, all of the recording equipment ready, all of the cameras to, to film the whole thing. So yeah, it was, it was a bit of a happy accident, really. But sometimes the, the funnest science works out that way. The main finding of our study is actually that it's pretty remarkably high. When these bees are on their own, we know already that they do carry a small amount of electric charge. And this actually helps them do things like pollination, for example. It allows pollen to jump from a flower onto a a bee without any contact even being made. So we already knew that there was some small amount of charge on individual bees, but we'd never measured an entire swarm. And it turns out when you measure a swarm, unsurprisingly, there's a lot more charge going on. And so uh, at ground level where we made our measurements, the strength Uh, this electric field is really comparable to the kinds of changes in electric field you see during thunderstorms. 
And as we search for renewable source of energy, though, I'm assuming it wasn't enough to hook these bees up to a, a dynamo and maybe power our kettle. I mean, you could definitely get get something out of it. I don't know about a kettle, but you know, you could maybe maybe power like a, a very low power LED or something like that, perhaps. That's fair enough. What do you think causes these bees to generate this charge? This is something that we're kind of trying to figure out um, and have been trying to figure out for quite a while. There's two main mechanisms that we think are probably behind it. The first one is something called triboelectricity, which is basically a really fancy word for friction, right? In the same way, when you rub a balloon against your hair, the balloon becomes charged, your hair becomes charged, and you can move your hair around with it. We're thinking that maybe that's something that's going on. So as they fly through the air and their wings and body make friction with the air, but also with the body of the um, bee itself, that this charges them up. But we also think that possibly as they're flying around, they're also scavenging ions, so charged particles that are floating around in the air all the time, that they're kind of being focused onto the bee in that way. But the honest answer is that we really don't know to postulate for a second, as you say, this is in the early stages of its development, but do you think that this electrical charge generation is is only unique to bees? For instance, we have these large swarms of locusts. Would they be, do you think, generating the same sort of thing? Yeah, I think definitely. So we've actually measured quite a lot of different insects, um, including some, some locusts, actually. And it's generally true that most insects tend to build up at least some amount of positive electric charge. So it's possible that it's quite a widespread phenomenon. What makes it really interesting with bees and locusts is that they do form these very big swarms. And so their kind of collective charge can become very large. Obviously, we want to look after our insects. It's important to know where they are and in what numbers they're in. So if we know that they are generating electrical charge, do we have sensors that could potentially map or track our insects to uh, better find out their distribution, maybe help preserve them a bit better? With the honeybee swarms, it's likely that their effect on the electric field around them is going to be relatively local. So we're kind of talking within a few metres of where the, the swarm is. But locust swarms, for example, are much bigger. And tracking them is also important because, you know, they, they cause huge agricultural damage. Um, and I think there is definitely possibility that the kinds of sensors that we've already used in our study and that other people are using to record uh, thunderstorm activity could be repurposed for, for tracking uh, locust swarms. We've really neglected the influence of naturally occurring electricity in our understanding of the lives of animals and plants. Um, and I think this provides a really nice example of that. But I think there's so many more to be discovered, you know, because electricity really is everywhere. It's not a man-made thing. You know, it's been around since before life was on Earth. And so it kind of makes sense that a lot of animals and plants and other organisms would be exploiting it in some way. Sam England there on his Electricity in Bees. His paper describing that finding is in the journal iScience. Now, video gaming is big business. The industry turns over more money than Hollywood and statistics show that about three quarters of youngsters are regular gamers. Nevertheless, some, including parents and educators, say they're very concerned about the knock-on effects of gaming on children's development. There is, of course, also an alarming rise in childhood obesity, which has been associated with low levels of physical activity in this same age group. Putting this latter, albeit very important, issue to one side and considering just the cognitive side of things, though, according to a study that's just out from Bader Chirani, who's at the University of Vermont, avid gaming does appear to be boosting at least some aspects of brain power. 
as a hardcore video gamer, I was naturally interested in looking at any relationship that video game may have with um, mental health, behavior, or cognition. And if you look at the literature about video gaming, the majority of studies report negative outcomes, such as relationships between video gaming and depression, anxiety, aggressive behavior. So I wanted to verify because I have access to a large database called the ABCD study. We have 2,000 subjects in total, kids who never played video games and kids who played video games. What exactly are the data you've collected? How have you collected all this and what questions are you asking? So the ABCD study started in 2015 or 16. It collects data on 12,000 kids. We track them since they are 9 and 10 years old through adolescence and into young adulthood. And every two years, we um, do a follow-up assessment. The data we collected includes behavioral data, um, substance use data, neuroimaging data, genetic data, and the goal is just to better understand the neurodevelopment and the behavior in children and adolescents. And included in that is history taking about use of video games, presumably. Yeah, so it also includes a um, large battery of questionnaires. So the video gaming questionnaire is part of a larger screen time questionnaire that asked kids how many hours they spent on consoles or playing mobile phone or any other device. Obviously, this is self-reported data, but I presume what you then did is to say, I know roughly how long these individuals are spending playing games, and I've got these other metrics, including behavioural data and crucially brain scans and I can now marry up and ask are there differences in the people who have a greater exposure to computer games compared to those who have a lesser exposure? Yeah exactly. We compared performance when the kids perform two tasks inside the MRI scanner. These probe impulse control and working memory between video gamers and non-video gamers. And when you do that, how do the kids that are avid gamers like you were yeah. or are compare with the kids that never go near a computer? So we have seen um, significant improvements on two tasks in terms of faster reaction time in video gamers, better performance in terms of impulse control, and also better performance in tasks involving working memory accompanied by changes in brain function in regions of the brain involved in vision, attention, problem solving, and memory processing. Do you think, though, that the way you would have done this in the brain scanner was to give the kids an environment to look at that's pretty similar to a computer game? And therefore, it's unsurprising their brain gets more activated because they're used to doing that if they play lots of computer games because it's almost like they're in their comfort zone compared to children who don't do that as much. Is this a, a real extrapolable finding to the real world, do you think? That's a great comment and actually one of the comments by the reviewers of the paper. To address that comment, we looked at 
tasks performed out of the scanner that do not involve any visual stimulus. So we use task, working memory tasks um, that are done verbally and orally, like language. And we saw that video gamers still outperform um, non-video gamers. And do you think you're really comparing apples with apples? Is it that children who don't play video games don't play them for a reason? They have some other reason not to. And therefore, you're not really comparing children who are otherwise comparable, who do and don't play computer games. And that could account for why their brain activity is different. That's a really good question. So fortunately, the ABCD data set is large enough to allow us to control for um, a large variety of confounding variables, sex, socioeconomic status, site, geographic location. We can also control for mental health scores. So to answer your question, yeah, we are pretty confident to compare apples with apples. Why do you think the kids are showing these brain changes? What's the gaming doing that general activity, general life, riding your bike, reading a book, etc., can't do that a computer can? The theory behind video gaming and better performance goes back to the theory that um, the brain is like a muscle. The more you train it, the better it gets. And so I think we're seeing here some sort of practice effect. Hours and hours of video gaming may alter how the brain is wired and give this advantage. Just to note that the kids we're including here are heavy video gamers because all of them play three hours or more per day. So those kids were putting in some serious screen time, weren't they? I only wish I had that much free time these days. That was Beda Chirani. He's at the University of Vermont. The study has just come out in the journal JAMA Network Open. We look down now, right to the bottom of the deep sea. The Hadal Zone is a region of the ocean so deep that it was named after Hades himself. It can reach up to 11 kilometres at its lowest point. But even so, there's still life at these depths, and a new study of this hard-to-reach region has revealed an exciting opportunity to observe the evolution of a new species. A member of the amphipod family called Bathycalosoma schellenbergi, nailed it, have been found to be living in 11 distinct groups at these extreme depths. These groups of shrimp-like creatures were found to be genetically identical, but they are so isolated that their groups never mix. So are they splitting off to form new species? Joanna Weston from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute has been speaking to Will Tingle about what the future may hold down in the depths. We're getting a snapshot to see kind of evolution and speciation happen. Um, so while it's the same species right now, these different populations aren't interbreeding and so they're on their way to becoming different species. So even though they were the same species, we're showing that they're actually very isolated into each one of these hadal zones. And we'd assume that any speciation or any change that these amphipods would undergo is going to be far longer than our natural lifetimes. We're probably not going to see its effects within the next 10 years. Yeah, so we're talking about scales of millions of years. Um, but this is just uh, what we're doing is seeing a snapshot in time. What's exciting about this study is this is the first time um, that we've been able to gather a global specimen collection and then actually be able to test these questions that have really been plaguing 
us as scientists since the Hadal zone was first studied in the 1950s. So for us as Hadal biologists, this is really exciting step forward in our field. And you say that there's not only a very low amount of genetic differences between these populations, but also a very small amount of gene flow. They're not really interacting with each other. Is it therefore the reason why they're so similar? Could it be because the conditions down in the Hadal zone are so uniform that there's no real reason for any one particular isolated population to need to adapt to anything? And that's definitely a good hypothesis and some, and we're not able to get a clear answer on that in this study, but I think that does play a role. So the two populations that were uh, most different uh, was the Atacama Trench and the South Sandwich Trench um, population. And the Atacama Trench population seemed to be different enough to suggest it was a very similar but different species. And so the Hadal Zone is about one to two degrees C, not a lot of food, really high pressure. Um, and it has, as you said, most places are have a similar environment. The Atacama Trench and the South Sandwich Trench are um, unique in that Atacama Trench has actually a lot of food input. And we're learning that has really low dissolved oxygen. And so its condition is slightly different, which might push selection towards speciation. And then South Sandwich Trench is a really interesting system as well, because it's one of the few trenches where the temperatures down there are actually below zero. And so again, there might be that extra cold temperature might be accelerating diversification as well. This is all postulation, of course. It is all postulation. It's really exciting to be able to postulate these things now. In the last few years, I feel the general public and maybe even governments have started to shift their attitudes towards the sea as being a place that needs immediate conservation. We see these beautiful you know, dolphins and coral reefs and we think we need to save the ocean, but we don't pay much attention to the real deepest parts of the ocean. So how does this study hope to shine a light on the Hadal Zone species? Hadal Zone, like, it's very hard to get to technologically, logistically. It feels really far. Like 11,000 meters is a long way down. It takes about four hours in a submarine. And so it gives this perception of remoteness. But a number of studies were learning that um, this remoteness is actually not protecting the Hadal Zone from us. So we're learning that there's high amounts of plastic pollution, um, where animals um, are actually inadvertently ingesting plastic fibers. There's high levels of PCBs. Um, there's high levels of anthropogenic um, mercury. And so these this remoteness isn't protecting them um, or shielding them from us. So I think as we start to talk about deep sea conservation, we really need to bring the Hadal Zone into that conversation and make sure that we're not just protecting coral reefs, but we're also protecting the deepest parts of our ocean as well. Joanna Weston and that paper was published in Science Advances. And if you want to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing this week, transcripts and the references to the published papers where they're available are all on our website where you can download this programme again for free. It's nakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts.
And it goes without saying, we love hearing from you. Your thoughts, comments, critique and feedback are most welcome. Please do drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com if you'd like to contribute. And you can also find us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientist. There's a Facebook page as well. And if you do enjoy listening to these programmes, then would you consider please supporting us with a donation, either a regular support donation or a one-off? We've made this very safe and simple. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. It really does help to keep the show on the road. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.